Hi, this is Martin Medeiros with Negotiation Strategist Research, and as you know, I stand for the proposition that we communicate our needs to the world using negotiation and how effective we are at communicating those needs to determine if we achieve our needs. Negotiation is agency. Negotiation is freedom. You can control it. Hi, this is Martin Medeiros with Negotiation Strategist Research. Today I'm going to talk about the three subsystems of negotiation. Those of you who know me, who've read my works, know that I believe that there are three systems to negotiation. Strategies, things we do beforehand, tactics, things we do after negotiation, operational, part of the negotiation, which are external things that impact its outcome. And these systems overlap, like a Venn diagram. There are some tactics that are used operationally, and there are some strategies that have a tactical impact. Let's get right into it. The first thing you want to do is have a strategy, and I've outlined an eight-point uh, plan on how to do that. The first subsystem we're going to talk about is strategy, how we plan the negotiation. And there are generally eight parts. The first four deal with the readiness of the parties. The second four deal with the performance, how will they actually do the deal. The first element I want to know in my plan is knowledge. I want to have knowledge about the general subject matter. I want to have knowledge about how these deals are typically done. And I may want knowledge about the parties, uh, maybe some psychology, maybe some uh, probabilities, outcomes, payoffs, kind of a game theory analysis on how these deals typically go given my situation. And that is very important to have a basic knowledge and understanding of the way these deals are going. Uh, secondly, I want to know what the preferred communications protocol of the parties are. What's the best way to prosecute this negotiation? Is it by telephone, which is by far the most used means to negotiate because of expense. Face-to-face, uh, -face, most professional negotiators get a lot more information and people generally face-to-face -face and they prefer that method, but it's not always possible. Uh, we have new technologies, uh, video, and soon they're launching new holographic type interactions where we get a lot more information, almost like being face-to-face -face, that will help communicate those uh, needs and desires we have in a negotiation. And it's important on the communications protocol to know the effect where it has on cost and time taken to negotiate. If we match the communications protocol of those, uh, our adversaries, those negotiations typically go faster. They generally go at lower expense as well. If we cross-purpose them, we can actually slow down the velocity of the negotiation, which may be intentional. Another element on the preparation side is knowing our current state. When we know where we are now, we're better able to accept the deal we're trying to get to. For example, if I'm a physician with a bunch of clinics and I'm doing a remote medicine type application, 
and I want to be able to, in real time, have video streaming with some of these patients and get an expert in front of them to my clinics. So I negotiate a killer deal on cameras and the end of network equipment needed to make this video remote medicine project work, only to find out that in those locations, bandwidth is very spotty and actually it's not going to work. And this is an example of figuring out what the current state of my, in this case, network infrastructure is before I go and negotiate any killer deal because there may have been alternatives that work with less bandwidth, for example, to make that solution work. The fourth element in my plan is going to be this idea of future state. Where, well, where am I going? What's my goal? Where do I want to be? What's my end state? What is the need I'm trying to meet? That's very important. If you don't know what the end state is, you are much more likely to be pushed in any direction and end up with closing a deal, but it may not be anything that you wanted it to be. The next four elements have to do with the performance, the actual doing of the deal. How can I predict as best I can into the crystal ball of negotiation? Will this perform uh, as expected? And the fifth element is the ability to form. To perform, I want to do kind of a due diligence on the parties. Do they have experience doing this? Are there references? If I'm building a house, can I look at houses they built before? Are things plumb? These are things that give me insights into determining if the parties can actually perform the deal once it's closed. We also want to document the performance of the negotiation itself. Uh, if we reach, if we close out different elements of it, I want to make sure they're closed out because reopening closed issues can really take a lot more time and money in the negotiation. So, for example, if we settle on the specification, at the end of the day, I'll send out a text or an email saying, hey, you know, Sally, that was great that we closed out the specification. I look forward to negotiating price first thing in the morning. And what that does is it makes the walk away more expensive to people because people generally want to be consistent and it closes out the issue and it gives a person an opportunity to object. Oh no, we didn't agree. Recall we, there's this specification that we didn't agree on. For example, they'll go back with if we, if I felt it was closed out, but it was in fact not closed out. This is where we can you know, memorialize that deal. And ultimately, the little steps in these interim baby agreements will have the definitive attorney review contract at the end. And that's a way to build, get on that staircase of consistent development of terms to the ultimate deal. That's the documentation part, the sixth element of our plan. I also want to talk about deal durability. Washington University in St. Louis did some research on which deals end up in litigation are underperformed, don't meet the expectations of the negotiating parties. And those deals are ones that are asymmetric, where the parties didn't have the ability to negotiate. Even if they objectively got the better part of the deal, if they subjectively felt like they were disenfranchised, if it was asymmetric, if they... Uh, made mistakes themselves. For example, they made an offer and it wasn't, it was accepted right away. And then they think, Oh my God, I, that was bad. They accepted it right away. Even though it was a killer deal and it was accepted, they may still think that they didn't, um, perform well and they were taken advantage of, even though if objectively they weren't at all. 
Uh, so deal durability is something you want to uh, work with and plan on. How do you do that? I want to have a real negotiation. I want to have some give and take strategically plan out choreograph so both parties can say yeah this is a collective work i'm enfranchised i was part of this deal it's our deal we both had give and take uh, whether or not objectively or subjectively that give and take is given is irrelevant if the parties feel like they've participated in a process those deals stand the test of time finally i want to talk about ethics uh, the biggest ethical question that comes up in negotiation is uh, little white lies, they're okay, everyone does it. I can deceive. Well, no. When you open your mouth, everything that comes out of it should be the truth. That doesn't mean that everything in your head should be coming out. In fact, you probably can't do that. You're probably going to be subject to some confidentiality obligations. Uh, but when you say stuff, make sure it's accurate and truth because it makes you more of an authority it makes you more trustworthy and once trust is lost in a negotiation it gets very expensive it goes very slow and the minute that deal closes or that dispute is resolved people are looking for alternatives to get out of it so there's also legal implications because when you hear about these big top of headline fraud cases they all start with a little white lie that eventually morphed into misrepresentation, that eventually became fraud, and fraud eventually becomes criminal and leads to jail time. You look at these cases, and it's generally not the parties going out with the, the one big lie. It generally is built up over time. So my advice ethically, if you are a member of a society or a profession, they have ethical guidelines, the number one is do not tell a lie. There's really no benefit. And that's your plan. There are eight elements, once again, knowledge, communication, protocol, current state, future state, ability to perform, documenting the deal, deal durability, and ethics. Get that plan done, and you're much more likely to prevail in the negotiation. Uh, researchers at Northwestern University say we should spend about 80% of our time on the plan. But sometimes you can't plan. You don't have the time to think that, and you're right in the middle of a tactical situation. So I published this book years ago called 161 Negotiation Tactics. And there I polled 60 professional negotiators. They told me their most uh, effective negotiation tactics. And then I interviewed other people, including uh, police officers, business people, lawyers, combat um, veterans, uh, hostage negotiators. And they told me what tactics they used to persuade, influence, and negotiate with people. And that's how I got to this 151 additional ones out of the top 10 or top 11 we got but do not be overwhelmed because what i found is there's a pattern of five major groupings in tactics and they are as follows the first grouping is authority this is when i'll say something like uh, the law says this or this guru says this or um, I just read an article on this or they're reporting this. So that's when I appeal to some type of authority to persuade you to take an action. And the way to get around that, of course, is to attack the premises of the authority. Maybe they don't fit your situation. Maybe you have a different fact pattern. Attorneys call this distinguishing your situation from the one presented. The second grouping is deal structure. This is when a deal is structured in such a way as to uh, divvy up the relative 
experience or positions of the parties automatically. For example, let's talk about uh, a price structure, uh, whether it's flat fee or hourly or time and materials. Those allocate risks between the parties. Uh, for example, if I'm the seller of services, uh, time and materials benefits me. Flat fee generally allocates the risk of project overruns uh, from the uh, provider, uh, from the uh, buyer of services to the seller. So how we structure that deal can really allocate and also, um, when you think of it, auto-negotiate uh, risks and returns. So there's a lot of research in this area, and uh, uh, Dr. Thaler talks about this idea. He's a Nobel laureate economist about choice architecture, where we pre-select the rational choice, the the most rational choice. And that's something you see a lot, especially in public policy contracts today. The third area is this uh, tactical grouping of personal tactics, which have to do with things as blatant as what we call an ad hominem attack. You're not qualified to negotiate. You don't know what you're talking about. Those are personal or at the person attacks. Uh, there's other things that deal with persons and people and personalities, and those are the psychological types. If I'm negotiating with a narcissist, what do I do? If I'm negotiating with someone who's a little bit passive-aggressive, what do I do? Uh, there are different ways and different personality types we learn about how to negotiate and get affected because one way of dealing with someone in one situation will not work if they are of a totally different personality Type. So the way to deal with different personality types is focus on the needs of the people and get information about the person that's negotiating. Uh, do I have prior dealings? And if it's just plain bad behavior, uh, call it out, diffuse it, and go on. Just get over it. You can call out bad behavior. It's perfectly appropriate in a negotiation. The fourth grouping of tactics used is the physical tactics. These are things like oddly strong handshakes, people staring people down, uh, getting in your personal space, as uh, the one researcher Hall puts it, and that, that just doesn't fit, or it's meant to distract or intimidate. The way to deal with these physical tactics, which thankfully aren't used that much in negotiations, are just to call them out and say, hey, you're squeezing my hand, I'd like it back or the room's too bright, or something like that. In fact, I've had uh, people working on defense contractors where the uh, <laughs> branch of the military used spotlights on the, at the negotiation table, and you know, they, of course, called it out. And the contracting officer, who is the government uh, contractor representative, kind of said, cut it out. But it's kind of interesting how people use these physical things thinking they're okay, and they're not. It's based on the relative experience in parties. The final and fifth uh, grouping has to do with process and policy. These are things when we use to stand behind, it's a type of authority, but, but you know it when you hear it. For example, you're on a phone call with a call center and they say, I'm sorry, we can't do that, it's not our policy or that's not our process. And the way to get around this is just to ask, what is the policy? Can I have a copy of it so I may better understand it? And my informal data on this uh, indicates they can only produce that policy around 30% of the time. So I think people say there's a process or policy when there isn't. If they do produce it, then 
you can better understand the policy and work the exceptions because generally most policies have exceptions. And if they don't have a written policy and it's relegated to a rich oral tradition, ask them, have you ever made an exception to this policy? And if they say, no, I don't think we have. And then you can escalate. Escalation is something you can do where you ask for their supervisor to see if you can figure out uh, a better way to make them understand your situation and how you're different. Uh, so those are the five tactical groupings. The first is authority, second is deal structure, personal tactics, physical tactics, and of course, process policy. Next, <clears throat> we go into this idea of uh, tactical persuasion. And I want to speak briefly on the uh, teachings of Robert Cialdini. He's all over the internet and he's published millions, uh, sold millions of copies of his book. His first one in 1984 called uh, Influence. Uh, great book. Everyone should read it. Uh, in 2016, he uh, published another book called Persuasion. But the kernel of what he talks about is we find there's a handful of things that make us very um, susceptible to being influenced. One is uh, this idea of reciprocity. If I do something for you, I'm going to create some tension where I'm, you're going to want to pay me back in some way. And this is why uh, bribery and all that stuff is so powerful because I can bribe you uh, very, a very small amount and I could win a billion dollar contract. And this is why the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act legislation in the United States and the UK and a lot of different um, com countries have a similar act, Brazil, and uh, where it's such a reciprocity is such a powerful thing in influencing people, it's basically outlawed. But there are other subtler things. If you're uh, being kind to someone, uh, if you're behaving in a certain manner, they will want to reciprocate that. Another Cialdini concept is idea of consistency. So we want to be known as consistent and we want other people to uh, deal with us in a consistent behavior. And if they don't, that really detracts from our ability to have them, have us listen to what they have to approach. And consistency happens not all at once. The mechanism is very subtle. Uh, the initial ask, if you want someone to get on what I call the consistency staircase, is to have a small ask, and then it has to be not coerced. They have to take that step themselves, and it has to be in a public fashion. Commonality is an element of this concept of likability. People who have a similar experience, similar uh, appearance, are more influential to us, and we are influenced by them. Anything you can point to that's a common experience that helps us get to this idea of persuasion and influence. Another concept is social proof. If other people are doing something, uh, we will want to do it. We don't want to be the first to leave. Uh, over a million copies sold. Uh, this explains a lot of behavior where people uh, do things they wouldn't ordinarily do for the simple fact that other people are doing them. For example, riot behavior. Uh, the next concept he talks about is this idea of scarcity, which uh, for some reason humans really value things that they believe are scarce. Um, we want it more. Uh, and this is used often. We hear people say, well, supplies last, and then everyone wants to rush to buy. So those are some of the tactical things that we have with 
influence and persuasion. The final system I want to talk about is this operational system. And there are basically four elements to it. One is the media used. And what this means is knowing operationally which way we want to prosecute the negotiation can impact the outcome. For example, face-to-face uh, -face video hologram. These are uh, revealing a lot of information. Uh, we get between over 50 to just shy of 90% of our information uh, via physical body language, microexpression, according to a number of studies. So more than half of our information is done by reading people's body, uh, voice tone, these other things. And face-to-face -face gives us a lot of information. Telephone is by and far the uh, largest used medium based on research we've conducted, and that's because of economics. Uh, people still conduct negotiations via paper, believe it or not, as follows. We get a lot of printed and typed letters in the old-fashioned mail, but if I'm trying to reach someone personally and it's handwritten, uh, those envelopes will get opened immediately. Handwritten notes it is a great way to penetrate a very uh, uh, balkanized environment when we have so many uh, printed machine solicitations. A handwritten note really can make the difference if you're trying to meet someone and have the time to do that. Another aspect of our operational negotiation is the room layout which not only has to do with furniture layout, there's different types of it. This is, uh, for example, uh, the closer we are to the party we're trying to negatively impact, the less likely we'll be very aggressive with them. These are uh, some studies done by uh, Stanley Milgram, who in the 1950s had you know actors acting like they were receiving an electric shock, and then the subject who was asking a question, if they got the question wrong, they would deliver the shock. And the actor, with increasing, uh, I guess, voltage, would shriek out. And through all these studies, they found that the closer the person was to the party receiving, the less likely they would be more aggressive. They wouldn't shock them as much until they were holding their hand, and then they said, no, I'm not going to do that. Oddly enough, if there was an authority figure in the room commanding them to deliver the shock, they generally did. A lot of uh, ways to unpack the Stanley Milgram studies, but the takeaway here is the closer you are to the party, the less aggressive and negative they will be generally, unless it's that's a forum like a boxing match. Um, so there's room layout has many... Uh, derivations of it. For example, uh, John Reed is a research interrogator, a uh, law enforcement interrogator. He talks about a read room on how to get basically confessions and there are a few elements. The uh, subject, the accused, uh, has to be barred from exit by a table and maybe a few detectives. They can't have any environmental control of their room, no light switches, no temperature gauges, um, and this creates more tension in them. Uh, and makes them uncomfortable. They want to get out of the room, and the way to get out of the room is generally to confess. That's one way to elicit that tension. 
I was teaching at a university and uh, one of the students described to me a panel interview and basically it was uh, set up as follows. The, uh, he was interviewed, his back was to the wall, there was a table between him and the exit door, he had no light switches around him or temperature control, and the panel of a uh, three-person panel sat on the opposite side of the table between him and the door. This is basically the interview uh, version of the John Reed interrogation room. Again, the intent is to uh, see how people behave under pressure to elicit essentially the truth. Now, when you negotiate, you have to use your strengths. And I outlined today three different systems. Planning, which is our strategy, thinking about things ahead of time. Tactics, things we do at the negotiation. And third, operation, things external to that negotiation that can impact its outcome. And there are many things that influence outcome, but you've got to play to your strengths. Operationally, we cannot be at our best without adequate food and rest and all those things. It's part of the operational side. So know that to be a strong performer in negotiation, you've got to not only have the knowledge, but you've got to take care of yourself. And those are essentially what my thesis is today. If you want to be a good strategic negotiator, do a formal plan. If planning's your thing, spend more time on that. But planning is the most effective thing. But if you don't have time, you're going to have to rely on tactics. If you're not good at tactics, just ask a question. Ask questions. It has all those added benefits. Operationally, lots of distractions in a negotiation, lots of variables. If you focus on your needs, that's a good way to start on mastering the operational side of negotiation. This is Mark Medeiros. Thank you for listening on this basic overview of the major strategies.